At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back. Welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, September 18th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited for this hour with you to help you take that next step in your journey of becoming a better investor. We're all on that journey. Nobody is perfect. Everyone makes mistakes. It's part of the game, but it's about learning from those mistakes. Maybe mistakes that you made, mistakes others made, and also learning from the successes as well. So we're going to do all of that on today's show, give you some actionable advice and some data that you can take and integrate into your thought process and have the proper framework so that you can make good investment decisions consistently. Okay. Now I'm going to give you some, give you my unbiased perspective with developed with over 20 years of investment experience. And we're going to talk about the market performance. We're going to run out some show topics, but first we're going to get to our first listener question at 888.99 chart. Hi, Steve and Justin. This is Clyde from San Mateo. Had a question about a stock, Vodafone, Victor Ocean Delta, VOD. Uh, see they're teaming up with Amazon and doing some work in Germany. Want to know if this would be a good buy. would appreciate any comments. Thank you. All right. Looking at Vodafone, one of the largest wireless carriers in Europe. And you know, making some headlines in regards to Amazon. And that's given the stock a bit of a lift here, going from around $9. Now we're right around $10, $9.90 to close today. So about a 10% rally over the past couple of weeks on this news. The problem here is that this is a name that just continues to grind lower and lower. And its largest market is in Germany. And we all know the German economy is struggling a bit as they try to transition away from Russian natural gas. They also have exposure to the UK and Italy. And so they're they're really all over your Central Europe as well as some African countries as well. Now, the issue here with a lot of these telecom companies is the debt. They have about $40, $35 billion in net debt, $26 billion market cap. Good free cash flow, $9.4 billion, so I like that. And I would say it's cheaper, it's, or it's cheap. Looking at enterprise value to EBITDA of two times, that's cheap. The issue is that going forward, earnings are supposed to fall from $15 a share last year to only $0.84 cents next year. That's not good. And that's the ultimately what the market is pricing in. So if you look at based on forward-looking earnings, it's trading about a 10 times multiple, which is okay. I would like to see, and it's okay for a company that's shrinking, right? It's a shrinking 
bottom line, and you're going to pay low multiples for for that. And 10 is a relatively low multiple. What I will say is it's worth a shot. If you're looking for diversity across various regions, you're looking for international exposure, this would be a good name for that because it's cheap. It has good cash flow, good amount of debt, but the balance sheet is not too stretched in my mind based on the, on those cash flows. So I'm, I'm okay with Vodafone. The technicals are still relatively poor now above the 100-day moving average, which is, which is nice. But I really want to get above the 200-day moving average around 1050. And that's where I'd say, okay, now the technicals are improving enough to where a turnaround is in the offing. Until then, I would probably keep it on the sidelines, but I'd be watching for further improvements in the technicals. All right, now we've, we have a lot to cover in the next 45 minutes. And here's what I have planned time permitting. Now, my focus point is regards to the inflation number, CPI, as well as PPI. We're going to dig into that data. In in some ways, it beat expectations. Others, it came in line. Uh, It just depends on what you're looking at. So we're going to dig into the data and what is the inflation picture today? A lot of people say, oh, inflation's a big issue, and it's still an issue to a degree. I think we all can agree it's come down uh, somewhat from its peak, but how bad is it still? So we're going to look at that. Also, I want to touch on a few other topics. One is in regards to M&A activity, mergers and acquisitions. Are they good for business? If, you're, if you own a company and they're doing uh, an M&A transaction, how should you look at it? What lens should you look at it? And what are the odds it will pay off for you, the shareholder? Also, buybacks. We're going to touch on buybacks. What are the trends in the buyback space? And are companies still keeping up with the pace that they've been at for the past couple of years? And then lastly, technology is on track. Technology sector is on track to have one of its worst months compared to the broad S&P since November of 2018. So where it's at now. So we're going to talk about why that might be. I also have some voice bank questions ready to play, and let's talk about the market overall today. One is in regards to, well, the S&P was flat, basically, and you had small caps down the most, down about 0.4%. The broad large caps were up 0.02%. Very, very modest kind of flat day, flat to down, really, a bit in the markets. If you had an up day, you probably did Fairly well, considering. So a lot is still up in the air when it regards to the Fed meeting coming up here. I believe that's the 20th. Yeah, so Wednesday. And the odds are still 90-something percent that there will not be a Fed rate hike. But it's once again, it's not about this meeting. It's always about really the next meeting and the meeting after that. And that's really what will determine the market reaction. Market's not going to react much if they don't do anything. If they, obviously, if they move, that's going to be much bigger than expectations. Yes, that will have a, a large impact. However, that's probably not going to happen. The Fed doesn't like to surprise the market, but they do like to give hints at what the market should expect going forward. So that's always that, that will be the thing to watch for on Wednesday. And I think until then, we're probably going to get a choppy, 
boring market uh, tomorrow until and the next day until what is it? Uh, yeah, eleven o'clock. I think it's eleven o'clock Pacific time, two Eastern when they come out with that news. All right. Now, as we go to break, let me remind you that you should check out our new Invest Talk Classroom series. Our latest episode on value traps is now up. Many people are chasing yield, and sometimes people focus too much on one metric, like maybe P ratios. So, how do you avoid getting caught up in those value traps? So, if you want to learn more, just head over to YouTube and search Invest Talk Classroom. Now, my phone lines are open, waiting for your questions at 888 Chart. When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap, because there's a lot of regulatory risk. And Steve Peasley. I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson Food, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24-7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888-99-CHART. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, Steve, Justin, Dave from Ohio. Just calling uh, today about a stock, Woodside Energy Group, WDS. Pays a 9% dividend, a $46 billion market cap. The price is like about $24 stock. My question is, is the dividend safe? And what would be a good um, buy-in point price for this stock? I have a small position, but I'm thinking about adding to it. Thanks. I'll be listening. All right. This is a, a different one. So in the energy space, we are getting a lot of calls about energy companies, and that's that's good. But this is one of those rare ones because it, it is headquartered in Australia, most of the public energy names that you're buying are focused here in the US, maybe in Europe, but not many in Australia. And this looks to be a spinoff from BHP, which is headquartered in Australia. And the big question is, are they performing well enough as a company longer term compared to those domestic counterparts? Here in the US, there's a lot of infrastructure that makes drilling for oil efficient, and there's just a lot of healthy deposits. Now, the good thing about Woodside is they have pretty much no debt in their balance sheet, $46 billion market cap. And so that dividend is probably safe because they can always add more debt, uh, at least in the near term. But what you have to realize is the dividend, it goes up and down. 
In 2021, the dividend is only 12 cents. Now it's 80 cents. In March of this year, it was $1.44. So I'm not sure what their dividend policy is and how it's determined, but it's very volatile. 2015, it was $1.44. 2018, it was 40, it was 22 cents. Then it went to 91. Then it went all the way back to 12 cents. Then they went to $1.44, like I said. So this is not one of your consistent dividend payers. And this goes back to what I always say over and over and over again. You don't focus on the dividend. You focus on the business. And if it is paying a dividend, you need to know, is this something it pays out every quarter consistently? Maybe it kind of stair steps higher over time. That's, that's what you want to see. That's something that's wildly volatile. The return equity here is about 18%, 19%, but its longer term average is about four. That's not good. Its median is about eight. That's not good. You compare that to, I don't want to use Exxon, but I'll pull up a, a, a domestic one, a large one, similar size, et cetera. And right now, the return equity is 35%. And its long-term average is 18%. Why would you chase this dividend for a far superior, far inferior company compared to what you can get domestically? I just don't see a reason to go after this one. So once again, I'll repeat it. I don't know how many times I need to repeat it, but I, I, I guess I have to. Focus on the quality business, not the dividend. And look for one here domestically. All right, thanks for the call. Now my focus point looks in the story behind this question. August wholesale inflation increased 0.7%. And does that mean investors should be concerned about maybe tighter Fed policy? Well, let's look into the data. Now, on a year-over-year basis, the producer price index was up 1.6%. That's it, 1.6%. Now, the month-over-month, 0.7, much higher than the 0.4% that was expected. And it was the biggest single-month increase since June of 2022. But if you strip out food and energy, it was only 0.2% higher. And core, this is called core PPI, up 2.1%. That's the lowest annual level since January of of 2021. So the overall picture is still pretty meager inflation. Now, the CPI, that was up 0.6% month over month, 3.7% year over year. But the core was only up 0.3% and 4.3% respectively. So a a, a pretty much mixed bag here. Now, final demand good prices were up 2% in August. That's the biggest one-month gain since June of last year. So it's showing that the deflationary environment for goods is actually turning to slight inflation. Whereas services, prices only increased 0.2%. And that's really where the majority of the inflationary pressure uh, came in. So while some of these numbers beat expe- or were higher than expectations, overall, the inflation story continues to ebb, not increase. All right, we're going to a quick break. Please remember, you can call anytime and leave your questions on the Invest Talk Voice Bank at 888-99-CHART.
you've got finance and investment questions, and Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready with their unbiased answers. Don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, Duncan from New York. Thank you for all that you do. I am calling because I have a quick question on the stock ticker MyTech Systems, M-I-T-K. I've had this for a while. It's part of my growth portfolio. Uh, I'm looking to add a little bit more. I know that just recently the company like delayed its financial reporting, which was slightly a little weird for me. So I don't know if that's considered a red flag, but can you just look into this? I'm a long-term investor, so I'm looking to see if this would be a good choice. Thank you very much. and looking for the answer to the podcast. Bye. All right. Weird is right. And you're correct. That is a red flag. Whenever a company doesn't report its earnings on time, does that mean that they have, are having trouble, you know, with their internal controls on understanding their business and be able to get these reports out in a timely fashion? That's certainly a red flag. Are they trying to cover something up? You, you never really never know. Uh, now earnings now for go. Let's back up here. MyTech, it's a small name, $500, billion, sorry, $500 million market cap. And they have software that helps the gaming community as well as the banking community. Interesting enough, this is the, they have the software when you deposit your check digitally. They have that software for the, the bank to read those checks and understand uh, what those checks are saying and, and the numbers, et cetera. So... It's a good business, and their business has been growing. You talk about part of your growth portfolio. But once again, I do worry about that ability to put out their earnings in a timely fashion. And if you look at the the action on the chart, it did rally earlier this month in a big way. It went from $11 in change all the way up to a high of uh, almost $14. And now it's back to about eleven fifty eight, the close today. So it's reversed in a big, big way from that high. And that worries me a bit. And once again, <laughs> I don't like the fact that they're having trouble getting those earnings released. So I worry a bit about the technicals and nothing major is broken. It's just more of a, a, a near-term reversal pattern that if it breaks below the recent low around say 1075, we'll call it 10, let's call it 1050. If it breaks below that, that's where I would be a bit worried on this. And I also worry about the earnings trajectory. Last year, they made 86 cents a share. This year, they're only supposed to make 18 cents a share, 18. So what's happening here? Why are their earnings supposed to fall 79%? And next year, earnings are supposed to bounce back 33%, but only it's 24 cents per share after making 86 cents a share this year. So what's the issue? I really want need to dig into that. Uh, I like the business. I like the longer-term growth and trajectory, but those two things worry me. Delaying earnings and having earnings fall so dramatically this year and stay down next year. All right, thanks for the call. Now let's touch a bit on mergers and acquisitions, and that that company might say that 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 could be one reason to own it is that that's the type of name that uh, a lot of larger companies would go out there and buy and try to add the their suite of software to their portfolio. But you might have companies, and you probably will throughout the years, that engage in M and A, 
They go out and buy a company. Think Microsoft buying Activision recently. That was a large acquisition. And if you look at various studies throughout history, uh, the most influential report came out of Harvard in 2011. And now 2011, remember this is kind of soon after the financial crisis, economy hadn't really recovered, stocks hadn't really recovered. So that always kind of paints a certain picture to it. But in that report, they showed roughly 70 to 90% of deals fail to create value for the buyer. But more recent research reports put that success rate closer to 50-50, but it depends on what type of deals you're talking about. Companies that do smaller deals more frequently, they tend to do better. Why is that? Well, the more deals you do, the more you identify what you got wrong and what you got right about previous deals and maybe clean up the problems and duplicate the, the successes that you had. Also, the ability to integrate these businesses can be tough. And the smaller they are and the more practice you have doing that, the more successful you're likely to be. And so that's really the, the, the results of these studies is that the big deals, more often than not, they don't really pay off. In fact, the data shows that sizable deals succeed slightly less often than a coin flip. And this is looking at deals between 1995 and 2018. And said so the buyer of, st- of the stock lagged behind peers 56% of the time in the year after a deal was announced. So those big deals, it's, it's usually too much to take on and they usually pay too much. Okay. Now, since the financial crisis, stock and companies doing deals worth $100 million or more on average had beaten peers by 53, 53% of the time. So slightly more than 50-50. Than and obviously, companies are trying to uh, get distribution. They're trying to extract synergies like lowering overhead costs and, and duplicative employees. But there can be delays in, in regulate, regulatory uh, approval. And the hopes and dreams of those synergies oftentimes don't pan out. So the moral of the story here is you should like it if the companies that you own are doing small iterative deals, but not really the big ones. All right, we're going into a break. Ready for your call at 888-99-CHART. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, Stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. Justin Klein and Steve Beasley are ready to take on your finance and investment questions. Call Investar, 888-99-CHART. Now, in the next Invest Talk, we'll look into the story behind this headline. There are four dangerous assumptions that could hurt your retirement plan. By the time retirement savers realize the error of their ways, it may be too late. We'll get to that topic tomorrow, but for now, let's pivot to the Invest Talk Voice Bank for a question that came in earlier on 888-99-CHART. Hey, Stephen, Justin, I'm an income portfolio investor. I own some real estate, which generates some cash flow. So that's pretty important to me. And I'm trying to build up my stock income portfolio and came across a UTG, Reeves Utility Income Fund. Seemed to have a solid dividend and just wanted to get your thoughts about this stock and or fund and see if, if you think it would be a good purchase for someone who is looking for that monthly cash flow that's possibly stable or hopefully stable. I know utilities have been beaten up for a bit now, so it could be a good time to uh, start dipping my toes in the water. But I wanted to really get your thoughts on that to see if, if, if you would agree. I'm looking forward to hearing your response and thank you for what you guys do. Take care. All right, looking at UTG, this is the Reeves Utility Income Fund. And this is basically a levered way to get exposure to utilities. And it does have a nice, healthy 8 plus percent yield, but it's using leverage to get that. So, as you know, leverage cuts both ways. It can, it'll up your income, it'll up the performance in any rallies in the underlying asset. But when the sector doesn't look so hot, it's not going to do very well. And you've seen that this year. It started the year around $30 per share. Now we're at 26 spot 71 at the close today. So 
it's down pretty nicely about probably what you're you've, you've received in, in dividends or it's paid in dividends throughout the year so you're roughly uh, flat but you're getting charged about a one point let's see the expense ratio is 1.42%, 1.42%. And that doesn't include your interest expense fees. So if the fund is levering up, they're paying interest to lever up, right? They're borrowing money. And that's about 40 basis points. So total, you're getting charged about nearly 2% to have levered exposure to the space. Do you want that? You know, that's expensive. It's a lot, a lot more than, you know, our clients pay, for example, and you're just getting a fund. But getting leverage exposure utilities may be worth it to you. Just depends on your viewpoint here. It's, it's an average fund. It's fine. It's not great. It's not terrible. Utilities, historically, they underperform. They're not great long-term investments even including the income compared to most other sectors. So you have to say that, but they're going to be steadier. They're going to be non-cyclical and maybe that's what you want as well, but they are bond proxies and that's why they've been down so much this year, especially since the interest rates have gone up since the 10 years rallied back North of 4% utilities have suffered. So, I think of this as a levered bond proxy exposure might not be exactly where you want to be in a rising interest rate environment. But if you want to chase that yield, there's definitely worse places to chase yield than utilities. I'll say that. All right. My perspective today looks at the impact of electric power on the American standard of living over the centuries. Now, this is broad. It can be complex, but unless electricity is an essential part of modern life. And amazingly, it's only been an everyday thing for a little over 100 years. Now let's go back in time. The first documentation of, his, of the history of electricity dates all the way back to 500 BC. The ancient Greeks, and there was a philosopher named Thales of Miletus, he identified strange behaviors based on friction between amber and fabric as wool generating an, an attractive force in objects with static electricity. 2,000 years later, in the 1600s, English professor and physicist William Gilbert published the first theories about electricity in his book, De Magnete. And then in 1821, English scientist Michael Faraday, heard of the the car company Faraday Future. It's where the name comes from. He succeeded in producing mechanical motion by the means of per permanent magnets and electric current. And so this was the ancestor of the electric motor. In 1831, Faraday converted magnetic force into electrical force, thus inventing the world's first electrical generator. And then obviously Thomas Edison in 1871 with the light bulb. Now in 1882, a house in Appleton, Wisconsin became the first American home powered by hydroelectricity, 1882. Now it used the DC current system developed by Edison. And over the next several years, the direct current versus 
alternative current debate captured the attention of the nation. And Edison and Westinghouse competed for contracts. Eventually, because it was cheaper to distribute and could supply power to large areas, AC became the new standard for electricity in the U.S. and still is. Now, as electricity was gradually introduced in the 1880s, American homes no longer needed natural gas to light homes, caused the gas industry to shift to heating and cooking uses as opposed to Now, today, electricity is an essential part of modern life, and consumption can promote economic growth, through which electricity consumption can, to some extent, enhance the production of capital, labor, and, uh, and technique. And economic growth can, in turn, increase the demand for electricity consumption, which indicates the inherent relationship between the two. That's why a lot of people follow China to look at China electricity consumption to see what's happening in their economy because there's a direct correlation to economic activity and electric use. Energy is life in today's modern economy. And obviously electricity is the core of that. Now, by 1925, about half of all homes in the U.S. had electric power. Think about that. A hundred years ago, hundred years ago, less than half of U.S. homes had electricity. By 1930, nearly nine in ten urban and non-rural homes had electricity, but only about one in ten farm homes had had it. By 2021, 100 percent of the U.S. population was calculated to have access to electricity. So this improved living standards throughout the United States from 1820 all the way to 1998, measured as best as possible in real GDP terms. It increased 21.7-fold. So basically, the standard of living in the U.S. increased 1.7% each year over that time frame. So when you're thinking about economic activity, you're thinking about economic growth, uh, standard of living enhancement, it really all rests on the production and use of electricity in some way, shape, or form. So I like, I love that perspective because it's taken for granted, even though we've only had it for you know a little over a hundred years, it's taken for granted how easily we have access to really a magical power that has improved so much in our lives and allows our modern economy to, to thrive. Now, this is Invest Talk. Let's keep things moving and grab another caller question at 888-99-CHART. Hello, Steve and Justin, everyday listener. Thank you for that. I just want to understand the meaning of uh, maturity uh, term. For example, the ETF is gov, S-G-O-V has three months uh, maturity. So does that mean should I sell it within the three months or what? Thank you so much. Well, when you're looking at a fund, which your the maturity is, what is the average length of the bond maturity date within that portfolio? So 
that's what it's speaking to. Every almost every bond, there are perpetual bonds that don't mature, but ninety nine percent of bonds mature at some point. Meaning, you hand over your cash, say ten thousand dollars, and the entity, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a government, whether it's a municipality, they're going to pay you some level of interest over time. And then upon maturity, that could be a month from now, a year from now, a decade from now, there are some that have 100 years maturity. Most are within 30 years, but that's another subject. But eventually, they have to give your money back, your principal back. And so when you're buying SGOV, that's a the iShares zero to three month treasury bond ETF. The effective duration or effective maturity is 0.1 years. 0.1 years. So you think of 10% of the length of the year, it's a little over a month. Is the average length of the bond that it's holding. These are T-bills. The government issues a lot of them. Government's constantly rolling T-bills, selling them today and maturing and oftentimes three months. And so that's what you're looking at here. You don't have to sell it. It's automatically going to do its thing. It's, 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 it's a fund. There's a manager. When those bonds mature, guess what they're doing with that cash that the government's giving back to them? They're buying more T-bills. And that's what this fund does. All right, let's play two in a row from 888-99 chart. Hey, Steve and Justin. This is Rick and Nels. Thank you for all you do. Love your program. Been listening for a number of years. And I called in a few times. Just want to get your thoughts on semiconductors. Where you think we are as far as semiconductor stocks in the market and what the best way is to play those here going forward. Do you like the SMH in general to get a good collection of those stocks or do you have some favorite picks in the market? Thank you. Have a great day. Bye. All right. Semiconductors had a nice boost earlier this summer from the likes of NVIDIA in regards to the AI craze. And this had rolling over with a lot of the tech names. And it peaked out around 158 back in late 2021 with the NASDAQ. Rolled over, fell all the way to $85 or so. So nearly it was cut in half over that time frame. And that low was right about the end of last year, or actually uh, the fall of last year, October. And made a higher low in late December and had a good year up until May. And then it had a really good year, right, because of NVIDIA. But it is starting to weaken as of late. It's starting to roll over. It peaked right around 161. Now we're at 147 and change. And you're highly exposed to NVIDIA. 20% of this fund is NVIDIA. 10% is Taiwan Semiconductor. Then Broadcom, Intel, Lamb Research, Text Instruments, etc. Now, if you just want broad exposure to semiconductors, this is not a bad fund. But once again, it's going to typically leads the tech space. Up and down. So this is a kind of an indicator that tech was going to rally um, late last year because of that higher low that this made. But now it's actually doing the opposite. It's underperforming the broader tech space and starting to lead on the downside. So you know there was a lot of overcapacity within the chip space over the past couple of years because people bought too many physical goods. 
there was chip shortage. And now in many instances, that chip shortage has turned into too much capacity, too many chips. And a lot of these companies within the space are mean reverting in their earnings. So I think the froth of the AI craze is, is wearing off. And I wouldn't be buying into it now. And I'd like to buy individual names if you have the expertise to find the better names that uh, are trading at reasonable valuations, unlike NVIDIA. And that's what I'd rather do. Now, if you just want to buy the broad exposure, I would be patient on it and probably buy this uh, with a, a larger pullback than you've seen so far. All right. Now, let's touch a bit on... Share buybacks and share buybacks in the U.S. have dropped to the slowest pace since the pandemic. And mainly, it's, it's there, there are multiple factors. Let's dig into it. But the S&P 500 spent $175 billion in share buybacks in the first three months to June or in the three months to June. So Mar uh, April, May, June. That was a 20% decline from the same quarter last year and a 19% decline from the first three months of the year. And why is that? Well, number one is higher borrowing costs. Post-financial crisis is all about borrowing money, levering up balance sheets at cheap rates and buying back shares. But higher borrowing costs are making buybacks more costly. Then you have other demands like reshoring supply chains, automation, artificial intelligence investment, reaching net zero targets, things like that. Also, on top of this, bank buybacks have slowed. Banks bought a lot of shares back during the banking crisis, and they've stopped because of regulatory pressures to shore up their balance sheets. So I think this is the start of an era of much slower stock buybacks by companies and focusing more on shoring up their balance sheets. All right, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888 chart You're building your financial future but you must have finance and investment questions. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready to provide their unbiased answers. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. This is Francisco from Stratford, California. This question is for Justin. I'm looking at LRCX, Lamb Research Group, or CDNS Cadence Design Systems, which is the better two out of those two companies? Loving what you guys are doing. You're making me get real knowledgeable in this financial industry and uh, looking forward to your answer. Thank you. All right, looking at two names within the chip space. Now, they are in different subsectors, however. Lamb Research, LRCX, is in the equipment arena, so selling to the manufacturers, whereas Cadence Design Systems provides electronic design automation software, intellectual property, and system design uh, 
help, basically. So they're in the process of designing the chips and using their IP in that process. So there's definitely definitely two different businesses that have different structures to them and profitability. The operating margins at Cadence are about 29%, whereas LAM Research, also about 29%. Return equity for LAM Research, 58% and 32% at Cadence. Both have pretty much no debt in their balance sheet, but enterprise value to EBITDA and Cadence is 51, whereas at LAM Research, you're talking about 15, 14 and a half. However, land research is going to be more cyclical. Its business is going to be more up and down. Companies are always designing new chips, and that's why Cadence just continues to do well and grow. But you're tra- you're paying a very hefty multiple here, very hefty multiple, about fifty times forward-looking earnings, whereas land research is closer to. 20. But both are similarly profitable. Return equity over the last five years for Cadence is at about 35%. For LAM Research, it's been 58%. So you're getting more profitable, certainly a more volatile business. Similar balance sheet, better value. So I'm going with Lamb Research here. I like both businesses, but I'm going to go with Lamb Research just because it's more profitable and much cheaper. All right. Let's touch lastly on technology stocks. Technology stocks have powered the markets higher in 2023, but I've been saying for a while since June that has slowed and you're starting to see that reverse. Now, the technology sector is down 4.3% in the month of December, and it's on pace to lag behind the S&P by its widest margin in a single month since November of 2018. So you have companies like Apple down 6.8% this month, NVIDIA is down 11%, even though they're both up dramatically, but you're starting to see this reverse. And the technology sector makes up 59% of the S&P's total return through August. And a the sister sector, I call this consumer discretionary, that uh, which has Tesla and Amazon. And then you have con- uh, communication services, which has Alphabet and Meta. So a lot of tech names have made their way into kind of these other sectors. Those other two sectors account for 36% of the total returns in the S&P. So if you're not overweight those two sectors, it's going to be hard to keep up with the S&P. But what you're seeing here is higher interest rates for longer are starting to maybe weigh on these high valuations. This year's rally has left tech stocks looking as expensive as they have in history. Last week, they traded 25.5 times expected next 12-month earnings, and the 10-year average is about 18.5 times. Microsoft trades at 30 times. Apple 27 times. So there's a lot of euphoria in the big tech 
names. And in contrast, the Europe Stock 600 Index trades at about 12 and a half times, about 2.5 times cheaper than the tech space. So that's why you're seeing that area start to roll over. Higher rates and lofty valuation. All right, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Vest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. And follow us on social platforms. Just search for Invest Talk on Instagram or YouTube. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. Invest Talk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.